22. E Greeks embodied in their mythology the story of Perseus and his destruction of the sea monster who ravaged the coast, and Hercules' killing of the many-headed serpent who issued from the Lernian marshes to allay waste the country of Argos. Even so early writer as Strabo states that yet earlier authorities interpreted Hercules' victory over the river god of the Achilles as the embankment of that stream and the draining of its inundated delta tract by the national benefactor. So the Chinese, whose land abounds in swamps and devastating rivers, had a long list of engineer heroes who embanked and drained for the salvation and benefit of mankind. It is highly probable that the communal work involved in the construction of dikes and canals for the control of the Huangho floods cemented the Chinese nationality of that vast lowland plain, and supplied the cohesive force that developed here at a very remote period a regularly organized state and an advancing civilization. The history of Egypt shows a similar effect of the yearly inundation of the Nile Valley. Here, as in all rainless countries where irrigation must be practiced, the water becomes a potent factor of political union and civilization. Its scarcity necessitates common effort in the construction and maintenance of irrigation works, and a central control to secure fair distribution of the water to the fields of the inhabitants. A stimulus to progress is found in the presence of a problem, perennial as the yearly threatenings of the Huangho, which demands the application of human intelligence and concerted labor for its solution. Additional arable land for the growing population can be secured only by the wider distribution of the fructifying water, this in turn depends upon corporate effort wisely directed and ably controlled. Every lapse in governmental efficiency means an encroachment of the desert upon the alluvial fields and finally to the river bank. As today in Mesopotamia, the fact that the earliest civilizations had originated in the subtropical rainless districts of the world has been ascribed solely to the regular and abundant returns to tillage under irrigation, as opposed to the uncertain crops under variable meteorological conditions, to the consequent accumulation of wealth, and the emancipation of man for other and higher activities, which follows his escape from the agricultural vicissitudes of an uncertain climate. When Draper says, civilization depends on climate and agriculture and the civilization of Egypt depended for its commencement on the sameness and stability of the African climate. And again, agriculture is certain in Egypt and their man first became civilized. He seizes upon the conspicuous fact of a stable food supply as the basis of progress, failing to detect those potent underlying social effects of the inundation social and political union to secure the most effective distribution of the Nile's blessings and to augment by human devices the area accessible to them. The development of an intelligent water economy, which ultimately produced a long series of intellectual achievements, this unifying and stimulating national task of utilizing and controlling the water was the same task which in various forms prompted the early civilization of the Huanghu and Yangtze basins, India, Mesopotamia, Persia, Peru, Mexico, and that impressive region of prehistoric irrigation canals found in the Salt, Gila River, and Upper Rio Grande Valleys. Here the arid plateaus of the Cordilleras between the Pueblo district and Central America had no forests in which game might be found, so that the Indian hunter had to turn to agriculture and a sedentary life beside his narrow irrigated fields. Here native civilization reached its highest grade in North America. Here desert agriculture achieved something more than a reliable food supply. It laid the foundation of the first steady integration of wandering Indian hordes into a stable, permanently organized society. Elsewhere throughout the North American continent, we see only shifting groups of hunter and fisher folk, practicing here and there a half nomadic agriculture to supplement the chase, 
the primitive American civilization that arose among the Pueblo Indians of New Mexico and Arizona, the only strictly sedentary tribes relying exclusively on agriculture north of the Mexican Plateau, was primarily a result of the pressure put upon these people by a restricted water supply. Though chiefly offshoots of the wild Indians of the northern plains, they have been markedly differentiated from their wandering Shoshone and Kiawe kindred by local environment. Scarcity of water in those arid highlands and paucity of arable land forced them to a carefully organized community life, made them invest their labor in irrigation ditches, terraced gardens and walled orchards, whereby they were as firmly rooted in their scant but fertile fields as were their cotton plants and melon vines, while the towering mesas protected their homes against marauding Ute, Navajo and Apache. This thread of a deep underlying connection between civilization and the control of water can be traced through all prehistoric America as well as through the earliest cultural achievements in North Africa and Asia. The economy of the water is not confined to its artificial distribution over arid fields, but includes also the exploitation of the mineral and animal resources of the vast world of waters, whether the production of salt from the sea, salt lakes and brine springs, the cultivation of oyster beds, or the whole range of pelagic fisheries. The animal life of the water is important to man owing not only to its great abundance, but also to its distribution over the coldest regions of the globe. It furnishes the chief food supply of polar and subpolar peoples, and therefore is accountable for the far northern expansion of the habitable world. Even the reindeer tribes of Arctic Eurasia could hardly subsist without the seafood they get by barter from the fishermen of the coast. Norway, where civilization has achieved its utmost in exploiting the limited means of subsistence shows a steady increase from south to north in the proportion of the population dependent upon the harvest of the deep. Thus the fisheries engross 44% of the rural population in Nordland province, which is bisected by the Arctic Circle, over 50% in Tromso, and about 70% in Finmarken. If the towns also be included, the percentage thrives, because here fishing interests are especially prominent. Proximity to the generous larder of the ocean has determined the selection of village sites, as we have seen among the coast Indians of British Columbia and southern Alaska, among all the Eskimo, and numerous other peoples of Arctic lands, see map page 153, not only in polar but also in temperate regions, the presence of abundant fishing grounds draws the people of the nearest coast to their wholesale exploitation, especially if the land resources are scant. Fisheries then become the starting point or permanent basis of a subsequent wide maritime development. By expanding the geographical horizon, it was the search for the purple-yielding murex that first familiarized the Phoenicians with the commercial and colonial possibilities of the eastern Mediterranean coasts. The royal dye of this marine product has through all the ages seemed to color with sumptuous magnificence the sordid dealings of those Tyrian traders, and constituted them an aristocracy of merchants. The shoals of tiny fish arriving every spring in the Bosporus, from the north, drew the early Greeks and Phoenicians after them into the cold and misty Euxine, and furnished the original impulse to both these peoples for the establishment of fishing and trading stations on its uncongenial shores, to the fisheries of the Baltic and especially to the summer catch of the migratory herring, which in vast numbers visited the shores of Pomerania and southern Sweden to spawn, the Hans towns of Germany out much of their prosperity, salt herring, even in the 12th century, was the chief single article of their exchanges with Catholic Europe, which made a strong demand for the fish, owing to the numerous fast days, when, in 1425, by one of those unexplained vagaries of animal life, 
the Herring abandoned the Baltic and selected the North Sea for its summer destination. A new support was given to the wealth of the Netherlands. There is a considerable amount of truth in the saying that Amsterdam was built on Herrings, New England, with an unproductive soil at home, but nearby in the sea a long line of piscine feeding grounds in the submarine banks stretching from Cape Cod to Cape Race and beyond found her fisheries the starting point and base of her long round of exchanges, a constant factor in her commercial and industrial evolution. Fisheries had always been the nurseries of seamen, and hence had been encouraged and protected by governments as providing an important element of national strength. The Newfoundland banks were the training school which supplied the merchant marine and later the revolutionary navy of colonial New England, ever since the establishment of the Republic. They have been forced into prominence in our international negotiations with the United Kingdom, with the object of securing special privileges, because the government has recognized them as a factor in the American Navy. The causal connection between fisheries and naval efficiency was recognized in England in the early years of Elizabeth's reign, by an act aiming to encourage fisheries by the remission of custom duties to native fishermen, by the imposition of a high tariff on the importation of foreign fish and foreign vessels and finally by a legislative enforcement of fasts to increase the demand for fish. Although any belief in the religious efficacy of fasts was frankly disclaimed, thus an artificial demand for fish was created, with the result that a report on the success of the Fishery Act stated that a thousand additional men had been attracted to the fishing trade, and were consequently ready to serve in Her Majesty's ships. The fishing of the North Sea, especially on the Dogger Bank, is participated in by all the bordering countries, England, the Netherlands, Germany and Belgium, and is valued equally on account of the food supply which it yields and as a school of seamen, the palmers or coasters of Arctic Russia, who dwell along the shores of the White Sea and live wholly by fisheries, have all their taxes remitted and receive free wood from the crown forests for the construction of their ships, on the condition that they serve on call in the Imperial Navy. The history of Japan affords the most striking illustration of the power of fisheries alone to maintain maritime efficiency, for when by the Seclusion Act of 1624 all merchant vessels were destroyed, the marine restricted to small fishing and coasting vessels, and intercourse confined to Japan's narrow island world, the fisheries nevertheless kept alive that intimacy with the sea and preserved the nautical efficiency that was destined to be a decisive factor in the development of awakened Japan. The resources of the sea first tempted man to trust himself to its dangerous surface, but their rewards were slight in comparison with the wealth of experiences and influences to which he fell heir. After he learned to convert the barrier of the untrod waste into a highway for his sail-borne keel, it is therefore true, as many anthropologists maintain, that after the discovery of fire the next most important step in the progress of the human race was the invention of the boat. No other has had such far-reaching results. Since water covers three-fourths of the Earth's surface and permits the land masses to arise only as islands here and there, it presents to man for his nautical ventures three times the area that he commands for his terrestrial habitat. On every side, the break of the waves and the swell of the tides block his wanderings, unless he has learned to make the water carry him to his distant goal, spatially. Therefore, the problem and the task of navigation is the most widespread and persistent in the history of mankind. The numerous coaling stations which England has scattered over the world are mute witnesses to the spatial supremacy of the water, to the length of ocean voyages, and the power of the ocean to divide and unite. But had the proportion of land and water been reversed, the world would have been poorer, deprived of all these possibilities of segregation and differentiation. 
of stimulus to exchange and far-reaching intercourse, and of ingenious inventions which the isolating ocean has caused, without this ramifying barrier between the different branches of the human family, these would have resembled each other more closely, but at the cost of development, the mere multiplicity of races and sub-races has sharpened the struggle for existence and endowed the survivors with higher qualities but it was navigation that released primitive man from the seclusion of his own island or continent, stimulated and facilitated the intercourse of peoples, and enabled the human race to establish itself in every habitable part of the world. Chapters IDA and EHROPO Geography of Rivers to a Large View Rivers appear in two aspects. They are either part of the general water envelope of the earth, extensions of seas and estuaries back into the uphill reaches of the land, feeders of the ocean, roots which it spreads out over the surface of the continents, not only to gather its nourishment from ultimate sources in spring and glacier, but also to bring down to the coast the land-borne products of the interior to feed a seaborne commerce, or rivers are one of the landforms, merely water-filling valley channels, serving to drain the fields and turn the mills of men. In the first aspect their historical importance has been both akin and linked to that of the ocean. Despite the freshness and smaller volume of their waters and the unvarying direction of their currents, the ocean draws them and their trade to its vast basin by the force of gravity. It unites with its own the history of every log stream in Laurentian or Himalayan forest, as it formerly linked the beaver dam brooks of wintry Canada with the current of trade following the Gulf Stream to Europe, where sea and river meet. Nature draws no sharp dividing line. Here the indeterminate boundary zone is conspicuous. The freshwater stream merges into brackish estuary, estuary into saltire inlet and inlet into briny ocean. Closely confined sea basins like the Black and Baltic, located in cool regions of slight evaporation and fed from a large catchment basin, approaching their reduced salinity the freshwater lakes and coastal lagoons in which rivers stretch out to rest on their way to the ocean. The muddy current of the Yangtze on colors the Yellow Sea and warns incoming Chinese junks of the proximity of land many hours before the low-lying shores can be discerned. Columbus, sailing along the Caribbean coast of South America off the Orinoco mouth, found the ocean waters brackish and surmised the presence of a large river and therefore a large continent on his left. The transitional form between stream and pelagic inlet found in every river mouth is emphasized where strong tidal currents carry the sea far into these channels of the land. The tides move up the St. Lawrence River 430 miles 700 kilometers or halfway between Montreal and Quebec, and up the Amazon 600 miles 1.000 kilometers, owing to their resemblance to pelagic channels. The estuaries of the American rivers with their salty tide were repeatedly mistaken, in the period of discoveries, for the Northwest Passage to the Pacific. Newport in 1608 explored the broad sluggish course of the James River in his search for a western ocean. Henry Hudson ascended the Hudson River almost as far as Albany, before he discovered that this was no maritime pathway, like the Bosporus or Dardanelles, leading to an ulterior sea. The long tidal course of the St. Lawrence westward into the heart of the continent fed LaSalle's dream of finding here a water route to the Pacific, and fixed his village of Lochine above the rapids at Montreal as a signpost pointing the way to the Indies and Cathay. In the same way a tidal river at the head of Cook's Inlet on the Alaskan coast was mistaken for a northeast passage, not by Captain Cook but by his fellow officers, on his Pacific voyage of 1776-1780, and it was followed for several days before its character as a river was established. Rivers had always been the great intermediaries between land and sea, for in the ocean all find their common destination.
until the construction of giant steamers in recent years. Sea navigation has always passed without break into a river navigation. Sailing vessels are carried by the trade wind 600 miles up the Orinoco to San Fernando. Alexander's discovery of the Indus River led by almost inevitable sequence to the rediscovery of the Eastern Sea Route, which in turn ran from India through the Strait of Oman and the Persian Gulf up the navigable course of the Euphrates to the elbow of the river at Thapsacus. Enterprising sea folk had always used rivers as natural continuations of the marine highway into the land. The Humber estuary and its radiating group of streams led the invading Engels in the 6th century into the heart of Britain. The long navigable courses of the rivers of France exposed that whole country to the depredations of the piratical Northmen in the 9th and 10th centuries. Up every river they came, up the Scout into Flanders, the same to Paris and the Marne to Meaux, up the Loire to Orléans, the Garonne to Toulouse and the Rhone to Valence. So the Atlantic rivers of North America formed the lines of European exploration and settlement. The Street Lawrence brought the French from the ocean into the Great Lakes Basin, whose low, swampy watershed they readily crossed in their light canoes to the tributaries of the Mississippi, and scarcely had they reached the Father of Waters before they were planting the flag of France on the Gulf of Mexico at its mouth. The Tupi Indians of South America, a genuine water race moved from their original home on the Paraguay headstream of the La Plata down to its mouth, then expanded northward along the coast of Brazil in their small canoes to the estuary of the Amazon, thence up its southern tributary, the Tapa shows, and in smaller numbers up the main stream to the foot of the Andes, where detached groups of the race are still found, so the migrations of the Carib River tribes led them from their native seats in eastern Brazil down the Xingu to the Amazon thence out to sea and along the northern coast of South America, thence inland once more, up the Orinoco to the foot of the Andes, into the lagoon of Maracaibo and up the Magdalena. Meanwhile their settlements at the mouth of the Orinoco threw off spores of pirate colonies to the adjacent islands and finally, in the time of Columbus, to Puerto Rico and Haiti. See map page 101. So intimate is this connection between marine and inland waterways that the historical and economic importance of seas and oceans is noticeably influenced by the size of their drainage basins and the navigability of their debouching rivers. This is especially true of enclosed seas. The only historical importance attached to the Caspian's inland basin is that inherent in the Volga's mighty stream. The Mediterranean has always suffered from its paucity of long river highways to open for it a wide hinterland. This lack checked the spread of its cultural influences and finally helped to arrest its historical development. If we compare the record of the Adriatic and the Black Seas, the first a sharply walled cul-de-sac, the second a center of long radiating streams, sending out the Danube to tap the back country of the Adriatic and the Dnieper to draw on that of the Baltic, we find that the smaller sea has had a limited range of influence, a concentrated brilliant history. Precocious and short-lived as is that of all limited areas, that the Euxine has exercised more far-reaching influences, despite a slow and still unfinished development. The Black Sea rivers in ancient times opened their countries to such elements of Hellenic culture as might penetrate from the Greek trading colonies at their mouths, especially the Greek forms of Christianity. It was the Danube that in the 4th century carried Arianism, born of the philosophic niceties of Greek thought, to the barbarians of southern Germany and made Unitarians of the Burgundians and Visigoths of Southern Gaul. The Dnieper carried the religion of the Greek Church to the Russian princes at Kiev, Smolensk, and Moscow, bowing to the southward course of its great rivers. Russia has found the crux of her politics in the Black Sea, 
ever since the 10th century when the barbarians from Kiev first appeared before Constantinople, the sea has had for her a higher economic importance than the Baltic, despite the latter's location near the cultural center of Western Europe. In other seas, too, rivers play the same part of extending their tributary areas and therefore enhancing their historical significance. The disadvantages of the Baltic's smaller size and far northern location, as compared with the Mediterranean, were largely compensated for by the series of big streams draining into it from the south, and bringing out from a vast hinterland the bulky necessaries of life. Hence the Hanseatic League of the Middle Ages, which had its origin among the southern coast towns of the Baltic from Lubeck to Riga, throve on the combined trade of sea and river, the mouths of the Skelt, Rhine, Weser, Elbe and Thames long concentrated in themselves the economic, cultural and historical development of the North Sea Basin, so the White Sea, despite its subpolar location, is valuable to Russia for two reasons, it affords a politically open port, and it receives the northern Dwina which is navigable for river steamers from Archangel South to Vologda, a distance of 600 miles, and carries the export trade of a large territory. Similarly in recent years, Bering Sea has gained in wanted commercial activity because the Yukon River serves as a waterway 1.370 miles long to the Klondike gold fields. If we compare the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans in respect to their rivers, we find that the narrow Atlantic has a drainage basin of over area code 19000000 square miles as opposed to the 8.660.000 square miles of drainage area commanded by the vastly larger Pacific. The Pacific is for the most part rimmed by mountains, discharging into the ocean only mad torrents or rapid broken streams. The Atlantic, bordered by gently sloping plains of wide extent, receives rivers that for the most part pursue a long and leisurely course to the sea. Therefore, the commercial and cultural influences of the Atlantic extend from the Rockies and Indies almost to the heart of Russia, and by the Nile Highway they even invade the seclusion of Africa, through the long reach of its rivers. Therefore, the Atlantic commands a land area twice as great as that of the Pacific, and by reason of this fundamental geographic advantage, it will retain the historical preeminence that it so early secured. The development of the world ocean will mean the exploitation of the Pacific trade from the basis of the Atlantic, the domination of the larger ocean by the historic peoples of the smaller, because these peoples have wider and more accessible lands as the base of their maritime operations. The geographic influence of abundant rivers navigable from the sea is closely akin to that of highly articulated coasts. The effect of the Hardanger or Sodney Fjord, admitting ocean steamers a hundred miles into the interior of Norway is similar to that of the Elbe and Weser estuaries, which admit the largest vessels 60 miles upstream to Hamburg and Bremen, since river inlets can, to a certain extent, supply the place of marine inlets. From the standpoint of anthropogeographic theory and of human practice, a land dissected by navigable rivers can be grouped with one dissected by arms of the sea. South America and Africa are alike in the unbroken contour of their coasts, but strongly contrasted in the character of their rivers. Hence the two continents present the extremes of accessibility and inaccessibility. South America, most richly endowed of all the continents with navigable streams, receiving ocean vessels 3,000 miles up the Amazon as far as to Batangod in Peru, and smaller steamers up the Orinoco to the spurs of the Andes, was known in its main features to explorers 50 years after its discovery. Africa, historically the oldest of continents but cursed with a mesa form which converts nearly every river into a plunging torrent on its approach to the sea. 
kept its vast interior till the last century wrapped in utmost gloom. China, amply supplied with smaller literal indentations but characterized by a paucity of larger inlets, finds compensation in the long navigable course of the Yangtze Kiang. This river extends the landward reach of the Yellow Sea 630 miles inland to Hanchow, where ocean-going vessels take on cargoes of tea and silk for Europe and America, and pay for them in Mexican dollars, the coin of the coast. Hence it is lined with free ports all the way from Shanghai at its mouth to Ichang, a thousand miles up its course. Navigable rivers opening passages directly from the sea are obviously nature-made gates and paths into wholly new countries but the accessibility with which they endow land becomes later a permanent factor in its cultural and economic development, a factor that remains constantly though less conspicuously operative when railroads have done their utmost to supplant water transportation. The importance of inland waterways for local and foreign trade and intercourse has everywhere been recognized. The peoples who have long maintained preeminence among the commercial and maritime nations of the world have out this in no small part to the command of these natural highways which have served to give the broad land basis necessary for permanent commercial ascendancy. This has been the history of England, Holland, France and the recent record of Germany. The medieval league of the Rhine cities flourished by reason of their own Rhine highway across Western Europe. The Hanseatic League, from Bruges all the way east to Russian Novgorod, out their brilliant commercial career, not only to the favorable maritime field in the enclosed sea basins in front of them, but also to the series of long navigable rivers behind them from the Skelt to the Neva and Volkhoff. Wherefore we find the League, originally confined to coast towns, drawing into the Federation numerous cities located far up these rivers, such as Ghent, Cologne, Magdeburg, Breslau, Krakow, Skoff and Novgorod, in countries of large area, where commerce and intercourse must cover great distances. These natural and therefore cheap highways assume paramount importance especially in the forest and agricultural stages of development, when the products of the land are bulky in proportion to their value. Small countries with deeply indented coasts, like Greece, Norway, Scotland, New England, Chile, and Japan, can forego the advantage of big river systems, but in Russia, Siberia, China, India, Canada, the United States, Venezuela, Brazil and Argentine, the history of the country, economic and political, is indissolubly connected with that of its great rivers. The storm center of the French and English wars in America was located on the upper Hudson, because this stream enabled the English colonies to tap the fur trade of the Great Lakes, and because it commanded the Mohawk Valley, the easiest and most obvious path for expansion into the interior of the continent. The Spanish, otherwise confining their activities in South America to the Caribbean district and the civilized regions of the Andean Highlands, established settlements at the mouth of the Low Plate River, because the stream afforded an approach from the Atlantic side toward the Potosi mines on the Bolivian Plateau. The Yangtze Kiang, that great waterway leading from the sea across the breadth of China and the one valuable river adjunct of maritime trade in the whole Orient, was early appropriated by the discerning English as the British sphere of influence. No other equally large area of the earth is so generously equipped by nature for the production and distribution of the articles of commerce as southern Canada and that part of the United States lying east of the Rocky Mountains. The simple build of the North American continent, consisting of a broad central trough between distant mountain ranges, and characterized by gentle slopes to the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico, has generated great and small rivers with easy-going currents, that everywhere opened up the land to explore trader and settler, 
the rate of expansion from the Europe fronting shore of the continent was everywhere in direct proportion to the length of the rivers first appropriated by the colonists. North of Chesapeake Bay the lure to a landward advance was the fur trade. The Atlantic rivers of the coast preempted by the English were cut short by the Appalachian Wall. They opened up only restricted fur fields which were soon exhausted, so that the migrant trapper was here early converted into the agricultural settler, his shifting campfire into the hearthstone of the farmhouse. Expansion was slow but solid. The relatively small area rendered accessible by their streams became compactly filled by the swelling tide of immigrants and the rapid natural increase of population. In sharp contrast to this development, the long waterway of the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes leading to the still vaster river system of the Mississippi betrayed the fur-trading French into excessive expansion, and enabled them to appropriate but not to hold a vast extent of territory. A hundred years after the arrival of Champlain at Montreal, they were planning their fur stations on Lake Superior and the Mississippi. 1.400 miles 2.300 kilometers back from the coast at a time when the English settlements had advanced little beyond tide water, and when after 1770 the westward movement swept the backwoodsmen of the English colonies over the Appalachian barrier to the Ohio, Cumberland and Tennessee. These long westward flowing streams carried them rapidly onto the Mississippi, communicated the mobility and restlessness of their own currents to the eager pioneer, and their capacity to master great distances, so that in 40 short years, by 1810, Settlements were creeping up the western tributaries of the Mississippi. The abundant water communication in the Mississippi Valley, which even for present large river craft contains 15.410 miles of navigable streams and which had therefore a far greater mileage in the day of canoe and flatboat, afforded outlet for bulky, backwoods produced to the sea.